0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bennett Kerber, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Gregory J. Callis about his new book, Beyond the Black Power Salute, Athlete Activism in an Era of Change, which will be available through the University of Illinois Press on April the 18th. Uh, Greg Callis, welcome to the show and congratulations on the release of your book.
1: Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Um, now, Greg, I was wondering if we could start off, if you could just begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, where you're from, um, and all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, great. Um, I'm uh, originally from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, uh, but I'm currently a, a professor of history, an assistant professor of history at York College of Pennsylvania, York, Pennsylvania. Um, and I've uh, I've bounced around a number of institutions in both American Studies and History departments. So I've taught at Franklin and Marshall College and Dickinson College and Towson University as well. So I've I've been um, I've taught a number of places, but I've always been really interested in sports as a, a site of historical inquiry, a place where um, you know we can. We can take something seemingly dumb and unimportant like sports, and I say this as a sports fan, uh, but we can find larger uh, meanings in sports. And so, um, you know, initially I was worried about, be- about uh, doing historical work on uh, sports when I was going for my PhD because I didn't want to uh, take something that I loved and, and get sick of it. Um, but, uh, you know, there was just so much rich, interesting material. Um, and so when I was working on my dissertation, I sort of on a whim, I, I looked into the first black basketball player at the university of North Carolina, uh, cause that's where I was in graduate school. Uh, and that led me down a, a kind of rabbit hole of, of finding all kinds of big meanings, uh, in, in sports and looking at the ways that athletes have, have had to negotiate, uh, the, the kind of politics of their times and of their lives.
0: Oh, that's and and I talk as a sports fan who also was worried about the same thing. I was worried that my sports fandom would go down the hill if I looked at it scholarly, but uh, I would say I look at it. I might be even more invested now, and I don't know if you find the same thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, yeah, I, I really was worried. I, I I didn't want to write, you know, sort of hero worship stuff, yeah. uh, and I but I didn't want to get sick of it. And neither one of those things I'd like to think has happened. Uh, and and yeah, I still. Uh, I think you're right. It has expanded my appreciation of sports. It's made me cast a wider net. It's the kinds of sports and athletes that I pay attention to. So, yeah, it's been good. It's been great in that way.
0: Yeah, and I will say you um, you definitely uh, accomplished that goal with uh, the new book. I, I think it obviously sports is there, right? Um, but there's a lot bigger issues that that are at play that we're going to be able to talk about in the interview. And I, uh, again, I'll, I'll save it for the end as well. But thoroughly enjoyed the book. Uh, Thanks.
1: i to hear it. Yeah,
0: um, But I am interested. I'm always interested in, in how the project developed. So how did you come to write uh, Beyond the Black Power Salute? Well, I,
1: I, my dissertation, which I turned into my first book, was about the integration of men's college athletics. Um, and I was looking at how people responded to college in, integration uh, in, in basketball and football, men's basketball and football from about 1915 through the early 70s. Um, and doing the research for some of the later chapters, I came across a lot of really interesting materials and and, and a lot of back and forth and, and some of that I could include in, in my book and some of it I had to leave off to the side. And so when I was coming back to that, um, I was especially interested in some of the discussions that I found in the black press about the first Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier fight, which is one of the chapters, the centerpiece of one of the chapters in this new book. And, um, but as I was doing you know more research about that and as I was Trying to pull together various pieces um i kept looking for a book out there that that had an overall assessment of the late 60s and early 70s about the athlete activism of that era because there was so much going on so many athletes who were getting involved and i kept looking for that book that would help provide an overall summary that i could that i could sort of sink my teeth into And I couldn't find it. And I finally realized that if I wanted to find that book, I was going to have to write it. And so that's what led me down the the path of writing this book was to to really write a book that tried to take stock of that era, a time when athletes were really getting involved in all kinds of different ways and all kinds of different athletes and see what kind of connective threads we could find, see what things, you know, were accomplished and went well and, and see what uh, you know, what issues remained unresolved and, and, and why those issues remained unresolved. So that, that's a little bit about how the book came to be.
0: Yeah. And, and I was, uh, I'm always curious about like strategic decisions. Sometimes there's there's thought behind it. And sometimes I know it just happens, but, you know, I, I opened up the book and obviously started with the prologue, the first section, um, expecting a Tommy Smith and John Carlos um, anecdote, right? And, um, although you did say you're going beyond the Black Power salute, so maybe I shouldn't have. Um, and rather than talking about their protest on the medal stand in 1968, you open with the 1964 press conference in which Muhammad Ali, uh, then Cassius Clay, defended the nation of Islam. Um, and I'm curious why you decided um, to open the book with this particular press conference, how you thought that was a good, a good way to kind of open, uh, open the book, if you will.
1: Yeah, I, I, Ali is so central. I mean, so many athletes refer back to Muhammad Ali as being so important. And he's he's not only central to athletics, he's central to civil rights and black power. I mean, he's this you know, force, uh, uh, you know, for change in the sixties and he's, he's a lightning rod. And, and I kept, you know, he kept coming up in all the research that I was doing. And I think this press conference is just an extraordinary moment because here is this guy who has just won the heavyweight championship of the world. He was, you know, previously very beloved in the media for his wit and his banter, but he'd been getting some controversy because he'd been seen with members of the Nation of Islam with Malcolm X. And he, you know, after winning the championship is just so defiant. And he says this remarkable line, which is, I, do, I don't have to be what you want me to be. Right. And to say that to the mass media, to to claim sort of ownership over his his own image over himself in a way really went against the dominant story of how black athletes in particular had tried to negotiate the power structure and had to negotiate mainstream media. It was a a stunning kind of turnabout from say how Joe Lewis had approached his, his celebrity in the thirties. And so I just saw it as a kind of opening salvo, uh, as I phrase it in the book for a decade plus long stretch where athletes really do kind of stand up and, and reclaim ownership and challenge the system in all kinds of ways. And it seemed like an appropriate starting moment for that idea uh, and and for that shift.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, it was a good way to show people, to allow people to appreciate the challenges Ali faced. Maybe some people that are, that are my age, early thirties, that, that, you know, largely the perception is Muhammad Ali is this beloved figure. How much hate could he receive? And um, my mother's from Louisville, Kentucky. Um, Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing my grandfather talk about Muhammad Ali um, and, you know, the, even his hometown, you know, they weren't they weren't crazy about him during that period of time. And now they have streets named after him, um, you know, museums for him and everything. But um, at the time, he really I, it's good to, I guess, to say he wasn't always beloved like he is today and, and the challenges he faced and just wanting to speak his mind.
1: Yeah. And the courage that that required. Right. And, 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 and again, in the way it was, it's not to say that there hadn't been other black athletes who had, um, you know, expressed an activist bent or had challenged the system, but it was, um, you know, he was kind of a new breath uh, of, of kind of that, that idea, uh, in the sixties at a time when of course everything was, was changing because of civil rights and because of all the social activism that was already starting to bubble up. So it, um, but yeah, it was controversial. It was courageous. He got all kinds of backlash for it. Um, you know, it is curious to think about all the celebration of him in recent times compared to all the animosity that he faced in those early years.
0: And, And you mentioned it in the intro that, that obviously this is, um, a book that the title is connected to the Black Power Sloop, but this goes beyond just the civil rights movement. Um, You talk about women's rights, and in the opening chapter, you do that right away with that first chapter. You connect activist efforts by Jim Brown and Billie Jean King in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And you note that while they were impactful for African Americans and women, respectively, uh, you also note that they both ultimately failed to create sustained structural change. I was hoping you could perhaps provide our listeners with Uh, maybe brief background on their efforts, although I know that's hard to do, they did a lot, Um, and why it was the case that they were limited in their reform.
1: Yeah, so that first chapter is really about efforts for economic change, as you said, and um, I was driven to to think about these two who aren't often put in dialogue with one another but as a way of trying to make those comparisons you know very different sports obviously different genders and and um but Jim Brown was working you know Jim Brown of course had been a, a football player one of generally considered the greatest running back in NFL history uh and after he retired he founded an organization um called the Black Economic Union it changed its name but let's just call it the Black Economic Union uh the BEU and and the idea of the BEU was to uh, get support for black entrepreneurs to boost sort of um, what, what would later be called black capitalism, right? So, later to boost up African Americans' participation in the kind of uh, capitalist marketplace by providing networking support, by getting loans for business startups, by, uh, you know, finding um, again, sort of connections between both white and black business leaders and, and in a variety of ways. And roughly at the same time, Billie Jean King entered into the realm of professional tennis and saw the sort of stunning disparities between how much women tennis players were making in comparison to men. And, and was really the kind of spearhead of, of pushing for a new tournament, the Virginia Slims tournament for women's players that would increase the payout for uh, women's tennis players and use that as a way to, uh, you know, get more equality, get more funding uh, and and equal pay for women tennis players. uh, And, and, and use that as a, as a kind of wedge to push the more established US LTA to raise their um, payouts for women players as well. So they're both thinking about increasing, uh, you know, market presence, both in thinking about getting sort of economic uplift. Um, and your question is, you know, what, what goes well and what doesn't go well, right. In effect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah and, and, in many ways, they are, there are elements of success to this. Jim Brown is, you know, of all the things Jim Brown does, this might be one of his most popular initiatives um, as far as his activism goes or as far as his engagement in civic causes. Um, he's widely celebrated in the black and white press for this. And, and that the organization opens up five national offices, gets big federal funding and grants here and there. Billie Jean King, in founding the Virginia Slims Tour, um, you know, eventually forces the USLTA to, to merge with the Virginia Slims Tour. And we do see an increase in uh, the payouts for women, especially at some of the major tournaments. Um, so there are successes here, but but ultimately, you know, neither one has the kind of lasting staying uh, presence that you would like, right? And, and the BEU in particular kind of fades. There are still actually sort of remnants of the BEU even in contemporary times, but by the time we get even to the mid-1970s, the BEU is, has practically vanished from the map. And a lot of that's because, uh, you know, Brown is dependent upon political support. And when Richard Nixon, who's one of his big funders, is, well, let us say, leaves office and not in the best uh, of terms, um, right? He loses some of that support, right? There's there's a withdrawal of that, that federal support. Um, and <clears throat> Billie Jean King, again, they force this merger, but when the merger happens the women leaders, Gladys Heldman, who had been the the, the president of the Virginia Slims tour, this uh, woman uh, uh, magazine owner who was a, a real sort of powerhouse force, she's forced to the sidelines and the same men that had been paying women less and had been treating them badly remain in charge, right? So the power dynamics don't, Really change in either cases, um, and so that's part of the problem that's going on. And, and one of the things I argue in the book, which we, you know we could tease out in more depth, but is that they both ultimately put their faith in the capitalist market, right? They both have an idea that if you get access to it, um, just let us in, let us compete, and and that'll be enough, right, to raise up African Americans, to raise up women, uh, and it turns out that that's not enough. You know, African-Americans are starting from such a disadvantaged position in the capitalist marketplace that access access isn't going to fix that huge gap, right? And and if you're dependent upon public support, uh, you know, what about the vagaries of public opinion? When does, you know, if that vanishes, you're in trouble. And again, with Billie Jean King, she puts her faith in that women can prove their marketability. She's willing to do all kinds of things. She, she partners with a, a cigarette brand, for crying out loud, uh, to raise money for, you know, for women's players. But, uh, you know, again, if you don't have the power, if you don't, you know, if it doesn't make a broader foray into changing media ownership and media coverage and all these other things, you know, it ultimately uh, kind of fizzles out and it doesn't have that kind of lasting presence.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the, that argument portion of your book, because I, I am hoping to tease it out more. I think it was a fascinating point And one I hadn't thought about is the, the limitations that the capitalist system actually puts on some of these activists. And um, yeah, well, we can save that closer to the end is, is maybe the big finish, but uh, sure. yeah, I think it's a fascinating point and, and was really well done on your part. Thanks. Um, now moving along to the, to the Boston marathon, cause it's coming up soon. Um, yeah. actually I have to shout out my brother-in-law's running it this year. So I'm going to wow. hopefully, yeah, he he's been trying to qualify for years and made it by a second. So he's finally able to run. Um, but with it approaching, even, um, you know, those running, running enthusiasts that may watch the race, um, or follow it, um, even they may know very little about the impact that Bobby Gibb and Catherine Switzer had on the event and, and the, the broader context that their decision to run in that race um, had on women's sports, um, women's rights. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners the impact of, of Gibbon Switzer's decision to run. Um, and also the larger significance of the backlash to their running in the race. And I'm specifically thinking about a historic photo, which you uh, reference in the book, uh, in which race official, uh, Jock simple tried to take Switzer's bib and force her out of the race, which again, if you haven't seen the photo, you can probably Google it. It's iconic. Um, but yeah, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about their decision to run and, and that reaction.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I think a lot of times when people think about the growth of women's sports in this country, they think about title nine and that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and because title nine is really important, um, that, there's no question about it, but the, the, the Boston Marathon, I think people would maybe be surprised to know that not only did the Boston Marathon not allow women runners, you know, well through the 1960s, but the longest race that was sanctioned by the AAU in the 1960s for women was 1.5 miles, right? That was the longest race that that was sanctioned, which is wild to think about. And so for Gibb and Switzer um, to run in this race was to challenge these broadly circulating ideals about what women's bodies were capable of, right? Because the idea was that women's physiques couldn't handle, uh, you know, running these long distance events, which is curious. If you think about how, uh, what women have to go through with uh, labor, for example, but in any event uh, there's lots of ways in which women's bodies do all kinds of incredible things. But uh, so for them to, to challenge that. and, And Gibb did it first in 1966. she, kind of slipped out of the bushes and joined the race without a number, um, and, and did really well. Um, and, and following year, she did the same thing, but Catherine Switzer joined her famously Switzer had, had managed to get a bib to get a race number by signing up with just her initials so that race officials didn't know that it was a woman. Um, and as you point out, it's, the, the reaction of of Jock Simple trying this this old guy trying to chase her down and drag grab her number off of her while she's running the race and uh, that image and then uh, uh, Switzer's boyfriend uh, Tom Miller who was a, a track athlete from Syracuse actually pushes Simple off the course and it's captured you know in this sequence uh, and it becomes widely popular it's this dramatic moment right and I think it registered with a lot of people. Um, because it showed how ludicrous the restrictions were, right? It showed the fact that, um, you know, women wanted to and could uh, engage in this kind of physical activity. Most of the runners in the race, the vast majority were supportive of the women for running in the race. And so it just seemed, and I think it's especially great because it's such an old guy, you know, it seemed like a kind of changing of the guard, right? That there was something symbolic about something new, Uh, you know, that was possible um, that these young women were were kind of pushing out against these old, uh, old ideals. And in the time of the 60s and and the change again, you know, we think about this in terms of context. uh, I think there was extra rich meaning for all of that.
0: Yeah. And that's I'm I'm glad you mentioned that thing, because that's immediately I thought about the first time I saw the photo when I was reading your book was just it's almost like it's not just about the race, but this like patriarchal power structure. Right. He's in his face is so angry, too. And it's like the idea that things could be shifting um, is frustrating, not just to him, but all men like him. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. So I think I think and I I think you did a great job of pointing that out in the book.
1: Thanks. Thanks. And and I will say, you know, one of the other things I talk about in the book, which we don't have to go down this rabbit hole too far, is that, you know, even a lot of women had sort of misgivings or mm-hmm. concerns, right? I, one of the things I looked at in that chapter was to see how women's magazines responded to this growing presence of, mm-hmm. of women athletes. And, you know, it's, it's a long, slow process of changing these attitudes. Um, and, and that's one of the things that I think is really interesting and powerful about that moment because title IX, I don't think could happen without those women kind of starting to push push out against those boundaries. And they, those women let's just important to note here, those women were building on other, you know, previous women before them, especially Wilma Rudolph, who, you know, African-American sprinter from the 1960 Olympics, who got lots of publicity, lots of celebration for winning, uh, you know, three gold medals. And so there was this, again, this slow and steady uh, sort of evolution of women kind of starting to challenge some of those ideas of, of femininity when it came to sports.
0: And, and whenever uh, the listeners get to pick up the book, I, I've got to compliment you on each chapter begins. You don't just start. Well, I guess there's a there's opening um, blurb starting in the 60s or 70s. But you always step back and let the reader know how we got to that moment in the 60s or 70s, kind of paying on homage to to those that came before. So I really enjoyed that uh, as a fan of history, which I know many of you listening are. So mm-hmm. you don't just get the 60s and 70s. You do get to the kind of the background and the context of how we got there, which was, uh, which uh, I was very happy to see.
1: Oh, good. Thanks. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and I was, yeah. Oh, no, it's very important. It's like, um, I think, you know, I always talk about the, the different, um, you know, people talk about women's rights and waves and stuff like that. And sometimes that tends to overshadow those, um, that kept fighting, right. Whenever we weren't Mm -hmm. at the crest of those waves, it's not like Mm -hmm. things just went away whenever, uh, whenever they weren't, they weren't at their peak. (laughs)
1: That's right. That's right.
0: And and I do, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that the the Charlie Scott was uh, part of your dissertation research because mm-hmm. I was, you know, I consider myself a, a sports fan and, and I love sports history and pretty well versed. But um, I'll be honest, I knew very little about Charlie Scott's story. Um, and I was hoping you could tell the readers about his activist efforts and what I felt to be even more fascinating, why he felt forced ultimately to, to have to compromise and remain rather moderate in his activism, or, or you know, um, less less active as he was hoping to be.
1: Yeah, Charlie Scott, um, So University of North Carolina uh, basketball team, even by the mid '60s, was widely celebrated and popular. And uh, so to ha- and of course, it's a it's a segregated state, right? This is North Carolina we're talking about. And so Charlie Scott was the first African American. Uh, player on the UNC basketball team. And he'd been recruited by Dean Smith to play that role. Um, and, and um, a guy who, you know, Dean Smith had come, had, had been seeking somebody to to play that role. He thought it was sort of part of his mission to do it. Um, but Scott coming in, there's a lot of pressure on him. There was so much pressure on him because he's the first black player. He was a star caliber player. I mean, he was a highly recruited um, you know, very talented athlete. Um, and he came in, you know, knowing that he couldn't screw things up, right? He, he had, there was a limited, you know, uh, range of, of sort of possibilities for him in, in terms of how he acted on and off the court. And he did great. Um, he, he, he was a, a key player in, on uh, the UNC team that in 1968 um, made it to the national championship game. He was, you know, the best or the second best player on that team. Uh, The following year, he was the best player on a team that made it to the final four. So he was, you know, astonishingly good player. But um, again, we think about context, Uh, you know, 1968 is when stuff really explodes on college campuses across the country in terms of athlete activism. Um, And in part, Uh, generated by, you know, Muhammad Ali and his his refusal to fight in Vietnam in the spring of 67, in part driven by the Black Power salute at the Olympics in, in the fall of 68. College athletes are getting more involved and there's pressure on the UNC campus for Uh, Charlie Scott to support the efforts of the black student movement and this is a a activist group that's pushing for a wide range of changes uh, at the school including hiring minority faculty providing more financial aid assistance to African American students. paying the minority housekeeping, mostly minority housekeeping staff, more money in terms of wages. I mean, adding black history and, and uh, Africana studies programs and class. I mean, there's a wide range of things they're pushing for. And uh, Scott is sort of pressured to, to take a stand. Um, and he goes and, and actually meets with the chancellor to, to discuss these demands with the BSM. And he gets a lot of heat for it, right? He gets a lot of backlash for it, and um, I think his story is interesting in a number of ways. But I think what you're you're calling attention to, in part, is that you know here's a lone pioneer surrounded by whites in a segregated state who is trying to kind of play this trailblazer role. And Scott, you know, talked in later years about how he really had to balance and set his sense of what he wanted to do, what he wanted to get involved in, the activist stand he wanted to make with his sense of obligation for the future, right? What what would his actions mean for, you know, if would other Black players be able to come to UNC, um, you know, and, and he said, look, my, I was here to prove that integration could work. And so he felt that obligation to kind of show that in action. And he had to, as to, he sort of toe a moderate line so that he didn't alienate, lead to too much backlash so that others could, could follow in his footsteps after him. So it was this careful balancing act for him to figure out what could he do and what ought he, ought he uh, you know, shy away from.
0: And, and the story, to, to your point, point, you and you mentioned thinking about the context and also the human element of the story, like the this is an 18, 19-year-old kid and the pressure that's put on his shoulders is remarkable, right? And, that, 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 and even the realization, I don't know if 18 or 19 years old, I could have been able to realize in that moment that this was about much more than me, right? Um, I would have probably looked inward and been like, oh, I'm playing basketball, I want to win. But he understood that this was much larger. And part of that is... Um, you know, speaks to him personally, but then also he's like, you said the movement that was going around these colleges at the time. Yeah.
1: And I think there was just such a heightened attention to athletes by the, you know, for so much of the 20th century, I talk about this in the book and other good scholars have talked about this, right. But for so much of the 20th century, African-American leaders had been sort of consent, content to give athletes a kind of pass, you know, play, do your sport, that's enough you're advancing the race but by the 60s in part i think because of ali right and his stand and because of the the changing context of black power there's more of an expectation of if you have a public you know a publicly prominent position if you have some clout you need to use it to help the community and as you put out that's a lot of pressure to put on anybody a 19 year old a 20 year old who's the only black player on a white you know otherwise white team on a in North Carolina. I mean, that is, I often talk to my students when we talk about these issues in class about, you know, nobody expects Rob Gronkowski to represent the white race, right? Or, you know, but but the pressure is put on, you know, African-American athletes, especially in these early years when there's lack of, you know, positive media attention. It's just, it's, it's a whole lot of extra pressure, um, that, that makes for tough decisions.
0: And you also, and I would encourage. Um, obviously, there's much more going on in the chapter with the Wyoming 14. Um, yeah, yeah, that's which is which is a fantastic story. But I I really appreciated how you went beyond the Wyoming 14 and um, talked about the the limitations put on st- student athletes um, because of how they were designated as student athletes, which I think is people talk about this a little bit more now with NIL legislation, but it was something that was just assumed. The term student athlete was just part of the lexicon, um, but you are able to kind of gracefully connect these events and incidents to a larger context. And um, this allows you to make a very astute observation. One I had not heard before, maybe it had happened before, um, that the NCAA's decision to change athletic scholarships from four-year agreements to one-year renewable grants in January 1973, you point out that that may have been suggestive timing. um, And I was wondering if you can tell our listeners what led you to make this observation, how this might have been a very strategic decision on the part of the NCAA.
1: Well, yeah, the NCAA had been had been trying to get that shift for a couple years, and and they start to try to make that shift right as athlete activism takes heart on campus. I mean, th- th- there's no doubt that that's <laughs> there's a relationship in that regard. Um, that you know that we have this upswell of activism in the 1968 and in, in the 1968 69 seasons or, or academic years, um, and the NCAA starts to. You know, start to try and tighten those rules up. And you can, you can, you get the sense that this is about, well, if somebody's acting out, if somebody's active in a way, we, we can then not give them their scholarship. We can kick them out. Um, in 73 in particular, there's a small uprising that almost no one knows anything about at Troy State University um, where students actually, you know, walk out at halftime. African American students at Troy State, which is the small school in Alabama, they leave a game at halftime in protest of a variety of, of, Issues, really bad treatment, and you know, sort of li- being lied to about what their scholarships were going to be worth—a whole host of issues. And I think there's evidence to suggest that it might have been the straw that sort of you know broke the, the proverbial camel's back here, right? That this was um, that that protest and the, the kind of bitterness that that it engendered maybe pushed some of the the presidents and athletic directors in the NCAA to to go ahead with this this shift in scholarships, which you know, really did work to decrease the amount of activism that athletes could engage in. Um, And fundamentally, the NCAA was not, and still is not, but especially was not in those days, uh, an equitable power structure, right? I mean, the athletes, the student athletes were really heavily constrained by uh, their teams, by their coaches, uh, you know, by the the NCAA um, and didn't have the rights of employees, but, in many ways, had obligations of employees. And and it's a very complicated situation. But yeah, I think there's definitely the NCAA is responding to this, this uptick in activism, even at small schools like Troy State and thinking, you know, we have to put a stop to this.
0: Yeah, the the timing makes sense. That's whenever I read it, I was like, oh, that's, yeah, the suggestive timing. I I completely agree. Um, And definitely something I had not considered whenever they you know, I thought 1973, they just finally passed what they wanted to. But um, I think it certainly makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. And I do want to jump back to Muhammad Ali real fast. Uh, sure. Since we, we started with him and we'll, we'll we'll we're not quite there at the end yet, but we'll get right. We have to jump back to him. So <laughs> I would say when most people think about Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, when you those yeah. two names come together, they probably immediately hear Howard Cassell's famous line in their head, the, the down goes Frazier, down goes Frazier," And that was the third of the three fights. Um, and however, you point to the buildup of that first fight in March 1971 and note that there was a much bigger issue at play, um, two competing models of black manhood and activism. And I was wondering if you could expand on this for the listeners to explain how each man represented one of two very different models. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Before I get there, because I think your listeners are going to give you grief about this, if I don't give you grief about it a little bit, I'm pretty sure Down Goes Frazier was actually um, the George Foreman-Joe Frazier oh, fight. Oh,
0: yeah. You're right. You're right. So, that's so, anyway, Yeah, so- that, that's on me. That's on me. Thank you for correcting. It's better. Th- better that you correct it now than later. <laughs>
1: Um, but yeah, the, the, the March 71 fight, the Ali Frazier one is, you know, the so-called fight of the century is actually, as I say, it was really the root piece that started this whole book because there's so much discussion. There's so much dialogue before and after this bout and it's freighted with so many meanings. Uh, but one of the things, you know, that's really central to this is this story about black masculinity or black manhood, right? What's the the kind of model, uh, that that each of these represent. And and I think Joe Frazier comes to represent a model that is about working within the system. That's about assimilation, that's about working hard, keeping your nose clean, and 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 sort of putting your faith in the system and, and gradually kind of working your way up. Um, whereas Muhammad Ali comes to represent this more outspoken model that is more aggressive, that is more combative, but that ultimately questions the, the system itself, right? And questions and challenges the people running uh, the institutional structure, and that is more defiant. Um, and Ali and Frazier come to represent these two sort of approaches. And Joe Frazier is a you know a Baptist. He, he fits into that traditional uh, uh, Black Christianity sort of model. Muhammad Ali is a Muslim, right? So he is Something different, and and again, sort of challenging the status quo in that way. Um, and um, there's a lot riding on this fight, and and it gets even more complicated with politics because Fraser, neither man serves in Vietnam, but Fraser has a as a, a deferment for it. Ali, of course, refuses to serve, but Fraser says, "Well, if if his name had been called, he'd he'd be glad to serve, right? He sees this his patriotic duty." So again, there's these. Um, you know they they come to represent these very different sort of political spectrums and political leanings, and so the the build up to the fight is intense. They're both undefeated because Ali had lost his his uh, boxing licenses while he was still undefeated. Um, Frazier had claimed the championship while Ali was exiled from boxing. Ali's able to get licenses and they meet up as undefeated heavyweight champions. And so it's exciting from a boxing perspective, but it's also got this weight of, you know, what's the right way, this conservative button down approach or this dynamic outspoken, quote unquote, radical uh, model of manhood. Um, And so what drew me to, to writing about that fight was I came across these letters to the editor in Jet and Ebony. And the anguished responses to the outcome of the bout, and the meanings—I mean, just how much stock people put into that fight—and to the fighters and the outcome of the bout was extraordinary. Uh, it, it was quite clear that there was a lot going on here about, uh, you know, bigger, situ- situ- bigger, bigger issues, especially again about, about black manhood.
0: Oh, and I'm glad you mentioned how, how you kind of came to the topic and the idea because. Um, I think letters to the editor for anybody wanting to know public opinion back in the day are always such a fascinating source that I think people overlook sometimes. Uh, so I'm, yeah, that's, 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 that's fascinating. And I believe was it Greg Gumbel. You said um, that, right. that his, you mentioned Brian, his, Brian, Gumbel. Brian Gumbel. All right. The brother. Yeah. yeah. His reaction yeah. was something that you, you drew on as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, Gumbel, I opened the chapter early in the chapter, you know, right about how Brian Gumbel, so spoiler alert here, uh, Joe Frazier wins the, <laughs> the first bout, um, and uh, it's a great bout, um, but he wins a unanimous decision. And after the fight, Gumble wrote that he sort of wandered around the streets in a daze, um, devastated crying, and uh, that he just couldn't figure out how Ali had lost because, and I'm going to get the word slightly wrong to, you know, get off the top of my head, but something along the lines like if Ali lost, then it meant that the cause of, of black equality lost, right? That all these things he believed in had somehow been defeated as well, or at least that's how he felt in the wake of the fight. And it's just suggested how much meaning people invested in this, Um yeah. And, and one of the things, and again, we probably don't have time to talk about it all, but one of the things that's especially tied in with this is about money and, and fund, funding and, and who, who profits from these two black uh, boxers you know, fighting. And, and so that's another sort of subset of the rhetoric is about who has control, who profits. And, and there's a case where people are questioning the power dynamics, but again, not much actually gets changed uh, in terms of that, that ownership issue.
0: And, and yeah, just as it also just speaks to how, you know, some people aren't able to make those connections to sports and the larger issues at play. And I just, you know, some people, and we'll talk about this at the end, I've kind of saved this, is don't want to make that connection between sports and politics and socioeconomic issues, cultural issues. But, you know, it's definitely at play. And I do have to shout out my favorite connection you make in the book. And I was hoping you could tell us about this. You make a lot of larger connections Is that fifth chapter. You make a connection between the origins of the American basketball association, the ABA and hip hop music. Um, yeah. So one that I'd never considered, but I thought was quite remarkable. So I was wondering if you could uh, expand on that connection for us. <sighs> yeah,
1: it's a, it was a really fun chapter to research and write. Um, and um, it, if you think about the aba and and the aba for those who don't who maybe are less familiar the aba was a rival league to the nba it's in existence from 67 to 76. Um, and because the, the ABA was kind of scrambling to catch up to the NBA, they adopted new rules. They brought in players who had been blackballed. They opened their doors more widely. Uh, and they had a lot of African-American players, more African-American players on the roster. They let their players have a bit more freedom in terms of how they looked and how they played. The game was more wide open. It was vibrant. We think about young Julius Irving and the first ever slam dunk contest. These are some of the things that come out of the, the ABA and as I was um, you know thinking about the ABA and and it it arises at the exact same moment that historians of hip-hop have pointed to as the birthplace of hip-hop um, and you know hip hops often thought of being born in the early 70s uh, born in, New York, especially the South Bronx, um, much of how people describe both the ABA and uh, hip hop center around issues of improvisation, center around people expressing their individuality, sort of calling attention to the, their their sort of ability, their skills, but who they are. Um, the ABA is often sort of linked to a, a quote, quote unquote playground game that it, that it draws moves from the playground, less formalized, less structured, but more spontaneous, um, and those. Playgrounds are in urban, the same urban spaces where hip-hop is, is being born. And one of the arguments I want to I make in the book is that those same factors uh, that motivate hip-hop, which is urban neglect, which is the declining infrastructure, which is the withdrawal of government support, um, th- those same things lead to hip-hop where people are calling attention to themselves, saying, I'm here, I matter, pay attention to me. Right. And, and in some ways, you can see that in the way that the, the basketball is played in the ABA and in the way that they adopt fashions and hairstyles that embrace who they are and where they come from. Um, and uh, it's a link that, yeah, hasn't really been made. And I think that the, the, I'm, I'm certain of this, right, that they are really born of the same set of factors. And, and in some ways, I argue the ABA really is the first public manifestation of hip hop. But people just didn't know what hip hop was.
0: Yeah I think this is a very apt argument and I I was convinced after reading the chapter again the listeners they can decide but I th- I think they will be convinced as well. Um, and I the last kind of um, historical figure that that you touched on the book is actually in the conclusion and I would guess that many people my age I'm in my early 30s are probably unaware of the impact that Kurt Flood had on not just major league baseball but but professional athletics in general um, and specifically the free agency system that we now probably just take for granted um so i was wondering if you can tell our readers how flood challenged uh, major league baseball's reserve clause and and how as an african-american athlete he was actually limited in his abilities to fight the reserve clause
1: yeah so so f- i'll try to tell the story as quick as i can flood was a, a longtime all-star outfielder for the st louis cardinals um but he received the bad news uh I, mean, I want to say it's 1970, right, uh, that he had been traded to the Philadelphia Phillies. And I say this as a Philadelphia Phillies fan. So I'm... <laughs> anyway, he had received news that he'd been traded to the Philadelphia Phillies um, and he didn't want to go. And, and And he writes this kind of remarkable letter. It's actually in some ways it's a bookend to Ali's Statement of defiance here, but he writes this letter where he says to the commissioner, "I don't feel that that I'm a piece of property to be bought bought and sold, irrespective of my wishes. I want to play baseball next year, but I want to choose where I can play." Um, And of course, baseball rules at the time didn't allow that. The reserve clause said that the team that signed you to your original contract retains hold of your rights even when your contract expires. So you either have to sign a new contract or you can be traded to somebody and then and sign a contract with that team. And Flood fights this. He challenges it. And, and with the help of Marvin Miller, they take it into the courts and it goes all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and they ultimately lose in the Supreme Court. But, you know, two things that are, are of note here. One is to your, your first sort of. Part of this question is that one is it it his challenging of free agency inspires other people to do the same, not just in baseball but in other sports. And ultimately, the the the, uh, the union finds a kind of loophole in the way that the contracts are written. Uh, that years later, a few years after this, free agency is going to arrive in baseball, and, and owners are forced to negotiate. And it and it, so there's no doubt that it paves the way for free agency in baseball. And because baseball. Is so central to american sports at this point it also then spills out into free agency and other sports because again other athletes have been inspired by this they're challenging they're pushing for it for their rights um so that's a, and that's a momentous change because players the salaries for players in all of these sports go way up because now they they can actually um enter into the marketplace and, and negotiate right um but even as flood was doing this and I, your 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 question about this the limitations he faces is he finds that and this comes back to Jim Brown and and Billy Jean King to some extent right he finds that he's limited in what he can say the other baseball players, the other members of the union are leery about supporting him if this has anything to do with race. Only if it's about economics, right? Only if it's about a kind of colorblind economic approach will they get behind him. So when he says, uh, you know, he makes reference to to, uh, being something like a slave, you know, people that sort of step back, there's concern, right? What do you mean by that? And he has to kind of distance himself from any of that sort of race-based rhetoric to, to kind of fit into that, 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 Capitalist marketplace ideal, um, and in doing so, right, it ignores the very real differences in wealth and opportunity and discrimination that Black, not only Black athletes but African Americans in general, had faced for centuries. Um, and so he's he's sort of pigeonholed into having to toe that very kind of conservative uh, economic uh, model.
0: Yeah, and I think whenever you you look back on this period, it, it, and it, it is a moment of empowerment. Um, but that empowerment for African-Americans are, is limited just because of, of they started because of structural racism, they started a peg below. Uh, so there are certain things that they just could not fight in the way they wanted to. Um, and I do think you, you point to technology as an important aspect of, of the 1960s, um, the platform that it does allow and how it empowers athletes um, and specifically television, right? Um, and I'm curious, I'm asking, I guess we're jumping to contemporary present day. Um, mm-hmm. how, how have you think the late 20th century technology, I'm thinking cable television, um, 21st century technological developments with social media, has that hurt or helped current day athletes' efforts to be activists, in your opinion?
1: I think it's helped. Um, I mean, I think that the most recent technological innovations have helped in a lot of ways. Um, I don't know if cable, you know, th- I think cable's exposure to new kinds of athletes and new kinds of sports is beneficial because maybe it has opened up new spaces for, you know, women's athletes to be women athletes to be televised. Although that's still a ghastly story of, of, uh, a lack. I mean, if we want to talk about the signs of failure to progress, right? We could think about media coverage of women's sports. Um, Again, we maybe see some, some little signs of hope here, but that's still an ongoing problem, right? Um, In terms of the amount of attention and, you know, paid to women's sports. But, you know, if we think about social media in particular, I think one of the things that's, really compelling about social media is that athletes have a direct line to their fan base. They have a direct line to the general public in a way that they don't have to go through that mediating force of the media. They don't have to worry about how is the media going to spin you know, what I say? Are they going to take seriously what I say? Are they going to cover it? Right? They can just go right to whoever it is that they want to to speak to. And I think we've seen that in a lot of ways. And I, I mentioned in the conclusion, um, I think in the introduction too, maybe, but the Miami heat after Trayvon Martin's murder and the fact that they, you know, posted something on social media and, and to, to, you know, kind of express their outrage at the decision. And, and, you know, that kind of, their ability to do that, they bypass the sort of traditional structures. And, and we see that show up in all kinds of ways in, in, in recent years.
0: And, and you've mentioned, I've really enjoyed uh, how you opened the book. Um, and I think it points to the fact that while certainly improvement has taken place, there's a lot of room to grow. And you can just look at the backlash um, to both what the Miami Heat did. I'm also thinking about um, whenever Black Lives Matter was painted on the court in the 2020 season, some people... V- very much in support, some people were not in support. Um, and you reference um, the 2018 uh, Laura Ingram quote, of Laura Ingram of Fox News, of course, telling LeBron James to um, shut up and dribble her words uh, when he made disparaging comments about then President Donald Trump. And I was um, struck, and if you don't mind me reading this from the book, the, in, the close to the introduction, I found to be very powerful. Um, not the only powerful part, but one of the many powerful parts, right? Um, you said that many saw the tumult of the 1960s as a realization of that fire, a time of upheaval and transformation as the nation wrestled with its inequalities and oppression. The story of this book is a story of that fire burning in the many ways athletics contributed to the flames. It is also a story of how that fire burned out, and at least temporarily, and the changes wrought in its aftermath. For change did come, not as much or as lasting as many had hoped, but American society in and out of sports saw significant alterations. And if the story of Laura Ingram and LeBron James is any indication, the fire is burning again. The re- results of that conflagration remain to be seen. So I'm, first of all, very well written. Um, nice preview for the people listening. Um, Thank you. I, you know, since now, it's obviously been, what, five years since that incident, Um how stoked would you say the flames are today and, and how long do you foresee it burning? Do you think it's going conti- to be a continuous burn? Um, just curious. I know I'm asking you to do the opposite of what a historian does sometime and, and forecast, but.
1: <laughs> I know. And as historians, we often, we're, we're, always like, but we're talking about the past. We don't talk about the, no, no, but I, I think it's a fair question. I, I, and I, um, I don't think the flame is quite as hot now as it was five years ago. Um, I think there has been a little bit of cooling off um, in some ways, but I think it is still burning. I think we still see um, an, un you know, I I think actually a great example is with the women's uh, NCAA championship and, and, and Angel Reese, you know, stepping up and talking about, the, the backlash she's faced and how she did what she did for the girls who look like her, right? And that she was too ghetto and too hood to use her words, right? And, and I think that kind of defiance and that calling out media narratives and that asking people to question their biases and, and, and assumptions about Uh, you know, minority athletes is a sign that, yeah, this fire is still burning. And, and it's um, I think it's exciting and and I don't know how long it'll last and I don't know, you know, where it will go next. Um, I think one of the, the, I, I think that's a remarkable moment and, and, I think one of the big issues is, and, and I don't know if you're going to ask a question about this or not, so I'll, I'll just say I'll, if, if so, I don't mean to preempt it. But I do think one of the big issues is and one of the things I come back to a lot in the book is the question of, of power and control. You know, I mean, ultimately, who has power and who has control is something that hasn't changed all that much over the six you know 50 plus years that we're talking about um you know in this story and so i think there there's a lot of room for that fire to keep burning because there is still i think a very unequal power balance in terms of who controls the media in terms of who controls sports teams in terms of who controls sports leagues and in terms of who controls the major economic forces that drive all of this and so um I, you know, I do think we'll continue to see, you know, pushback for the foreseeable future until some of these tensions and these issues uh, see more resolution.
0: And, and part of that larger system, which we referenced it earlier in the interview, but I think it's worth going back to is the the limitations um, that that capitalism in the United States ha- has on these athletes, um, right? And, and until I think you mentioned towards the end, and correct me if I'm wrong, that until some kind of significant you know, economic reform can take place, um, that, well, I'll, I'll let you mention it. You know, what, what is that limitation that capitalism imposes or, or in your opinion, how does it, how does it limit athletes, um, from making activism expand beyond, you know, either individuals or small, small groups? I, you know, and
1: I, and I actually, I will say, I, I'm not even sure that it's, uh, it's capitalism, per se in isolation, right? Yeah. But it's it's the capitalist system in the United States based on the history of how this, this country's economic system has developed, right? So I don't want anyone calling in and calling me a <laughs> communist. Um, <laughs> I mean, they can call me anything they want, yeah. it's fine. But I, it's not it's not a fair com- complaint, that's yeah. all I would say. I just think, right, I think the the problem with, you know, because the, the market is set up in the way that it is, because the capitalist economy has developed in the way that it has, wealth and power have concentrated in a very limited set of individuals individuals. And, you know, the reality is the Oprah Winfrey stories are the exceptions that prove the rule, right? It is not It is very rare for somebody to rise up from sort of welfare status to not only achieve a good income, but actually achieve ownership and control like that is not the norm. And so because of that, there's been this, you know, our sports are rooted in that kind of capitalist model in the American capitalist system, which, again, wealth has been concentrated in a certain, you know, segment of the population that tends to uh, be almost exclusively white and it tends to be predominantly male. Um, and therefore has its own set of biases and beliefs and, uh, uh, things that hinder the potential for, uh, you know, people who don't fit into those models to really make significant change. And that is, I think the real, um, that's the challenge, uh, you know, you can, you can empower athletes and athletes have gotten more money and there's no question that there has, you know, there's been significant change and, and, um, but rarely is that turned into actual sort of power and control. Um, you know, Michael Jordan may be one of the exam- exceptions again, where he actually did you know purchase an NBA team. Um, but yeah, you know, again, that's one out of how many owners, and and that. So that I think it's that broader framework. It's that historical legacy of wealth. Um, in writing about the Ali-Frazier fight, somebody you know made the point that the problem with getting equality in boxing was that you need the capital at the start to, to be able to fund the promotion. You need to have the wealth to get wealth. Right. And that's the, that's the dominant story. Uh, and so, um, that, that imbalance, that wealth gap has never been solved. And in fact, the wealth gap in the United States has gotten bigger, um, in the last 40 years or so. Um, and, and so it, you know, that's, that's a, a real systemic challenge, um, that, that goes well beyond sports.
0: And I'm really glad we closed with this because I think um, and and what I enjoyed about your book and what I hope and I think others will enjoy about your book is that you come for the sports stories, um, but you stay for for the larger questions that are that are really, you know, that make you think and make you um, think about, you know, basically how far American society has come and how far we still have to go. Um, You know, there is a lot of optimism in the growth that's occurred um, and and that that the, the fire that 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 these activists started but the you know there there is certainly room to grow. Um so yeah, if you re- if you pick up the book which I highly encourage you to do when it comes out on April 18th, um there's fascinating sports stories that are going to keep you entertained, but I really enjoyed how they also made you think and that that was that's um that's a you know a testament to to your writing ability. So, um Greg, I you know we've taken up a lot of your time but before we go I do want to ask if you can tell us about any projects that you're working on now that now that the book's about to be published. I know everyone's always thinking about what comes next. So uh, maybe you could tease us with some ideas.
1: Yeah, I'm starting work on a a project about um, prison sports and and looking at the way that um, different kind of sports teams and leagues and different prison settings, especially in the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. Um, to see, you know, what function they played and, and to see how they, you know, did they or did they not help with recidivism and how do they fit into the broader framework of mass incarceration? Because that's a time when more and more people are being sent to jail. And what did sports provide as a kind of outlet? And, and you know, when were they supported? When weren't they? And you know, do we see withdrawal of support uh, in conjunction with a kind of tougher line against crime? So, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about taking sports into a new setting uh, and and seeing what I can find there.
0: Oh, that's exciting! I was just about to say I've I've never heard of a work done like that, so I'm excited whenever it does come out. But let's not get too ahead of ourselves because yeah. uh, the book the book is uh, and I guess yeah, you should mention um, if it comes out April 18th, correct? I was right on that. And and um, how can people get a copy?
1: You can buy a copy at Amazon. You can buy a copy through the University of Illinois Press um, uh, website um, and and can even find a discount code there for it. Uh, So, and it's available on paperback as well as uh, an ebook uh, if if that suits you.
0: Uh, So, yeah, you have all the forms you can want. Um, And again, I highly recommend, um, I'm happy that I got a sneak peek, um, a preview, um, but I highly encourage everyone to go out and um, purchase a copy on April 18th. Uh, You won't regret your decision. And And Greg, I really enjoy your time uh, to speak with us and and learning more about the book. Um, And so, again, I can't thank you enough for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it.